Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam. I'm also known as Schmitty the Champ. And I am also, also thrilled about this week's guest because I'm joined by the one and only Jesse Thorne. Yes, Jesse Thorne. If you like good podcasts, you know his name. Jesse Thorne does fun comedy as the co-host of Jordan Jesse Go. He maintains a fun courtroom as the bailiff on Judge John Hodgman. He built the whole dang Maximum Fun podcast network. And he does incredible and open-hearted interviews with all sorts of famous people. As the host of Bullseye, a Max Fun and NPR show, uh, he's also made the absolute best podcast about the art of interviewing. That show is called The Turnaround. I, I go on and on, but I, just, I can't believe I get to sit down with somebody who's sat down with everybody which is something we'll talk about today, because that concept is partly the springboard for today's episode topic. Jesse and I are talking about bizarre and surprising stories of famous people hanging out. One more time, that is bizarre and surprising stories of famous people hanging out. Because one way being alive is more interesting than people think it is, is that throughout the 20th and 21st centuries, you know, the uh, the centuries with the fun celebrities, throughout that time, famous people have gotten together in much stranger combinations than you'd expect and to do much stranger activities than you would expect. And you'll hear all those stories today and so much more. So let's share all that with you right away. Please sit back or... Give a little time for the child within you. Don't be afraid to be young and free. Undo the locks and throw away the keys and take off your shoes and socks and run you. Because here's this episode of the Cracked Podcast with America's radio sweetheart, Jesse Thorne. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. I thought of this topic sort of in the first place because among the many things you do, you've spoken to so many famous people. Uh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> on my life. NPR show, Bullseye, famous people are through here. We just I just had this conversation with a colleague. We're sitting as we talk now in the recording studio where I record Bullseye. Yeah. And by recording studio, I mean modular recording unit that I bought used on Craigslist seven years ago. And they were like, man, if we're recording in here, like, could we bring celebrities in here? I'm like... Had a pretty fair number of movie stars in this sad box, <laughs> in this place that appears to have been built to, you know, more commodiously murder someone, <laughs> devil in the white city style. <laughs> when you speak to someone famous, I know you talked about it a bit on the turnaround, but like, do you have any particular habits or mental practices going into, especially somebody you're excited about? Yeah, I go pee a lot beforehand. <laughs> okay. Like probably like I will go in the half hour before I have an interview, I will often go pee four times. That's sort of the process that my jangly nerves do on my own internal functions. <laughs> just go back and forth from the bathroom to the, to the chair. <laughs> I've been doing the show that is now Bullseye. I have been doing in one form or another on a weekly basis since I was a sophomore in college, which is yeah. coming up on 20 years. So in a way, I am used to famous people. I'm no longer scared to interview a famous person. I get a little scared when I feel like I'm underprepared. Mm -hmm. I can manage that usually. I would say the top thing that makes me uncomfortable interviewing a famous person in person is that actors and actresses particularly are just so much better looking 
than <laughs> any other human being I interact with on a regular basis. Like I have to actively control the part of my mind that just wants to run. <laughs> like, like I was, I had in the literally in the chair that you're sitting in right now, four months ago, three months ago, I had Antonio Banderas, right? Really? And Antonio Banderas is a lovely man. He's had a totally fascinating life, you know, with Almodovar in Spain in the 80s and, yeah. you know, becoming a movie star and marrying a movie star and all this different stuff and that's that's been in his life. And my, my butt is deeply honored, by the way. Yeah. Very exciting. <laughs> as it should be. But, like, even as a heterosexual man, 20% at least of my brain's throughput was just occupied with Ah, look at this guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's really hard. It's really weird. Like, there is like a fundamental lizard brain thing that feels like I should be sorting myself out of this situation. Oh, like, yeah. I know that speaking as, at best, a seven, like two points is too big a gulf to cross. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, I should just buy rights according to whatever social cues are deeply embedded deep inside my deepest of brains, yeah. I should not be allowed to talk to that person. The other biggest experience I've had with famous people is, you know, I live in Los Angeles. I don't go out. I don't run in Hollywood circles. But our mutual friend, John Hodgman, with whom I do a show called Judge John Hodgman, yeah for a while was in a series of television advertisements for Apple. And he lives in New York. By the time it was like an established, super successful advertising campaign, he had talked Apple into, first of all, flying him to the West Coast on a fancy airplane. You know, not on like a private jet, but in like first class or something. Yeah. And then he would stay at this hotel called the Chateau Marmont, mm -hmm. which is on the Sunset Strip but is like a legendary refuge for famous people. Yeah. And a few times I would go like have dinner with him at the Chateau. The reason that he was having such a great time visiting it and to some extent belonging to it was because it is like a crazy alternate universe of famous people <laughs> where like famous people go to be famous with each other. Like a wildlife refuge. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but like you're sitting there and you're like, there's David Spade with two models because that's David Spade's deal. <laughs> like, look, there's David Spade doing that David Spade thing you hear about. Like you hear the dad from Full House making jokes about how David Spade's always out with two models. Yeah. And you're like, there's David Spade with two models. <laughs> like one time we were sitting there and I was like, man, that person looks familiar. She's very good looking, very small. Oh, that's an Olsen twin. <laughs> and they're just sitting there. Because they are human beings. They exist somewhere all the time. Yeah, but wow. generally, when people come in to be on Bullseye, I have gotten used to the idea that basically everybody is just a regular human being and yeah. that I could just talk to them like a regular, and it'll be fine. We've got a lot of stories here of the surprisingly common phenomenon of a very, very famous person meeting another very, very famous person and yeah. having like a weird hang. Yeah, they're known as unlikely animal friendships. <laughs> More or less, yeah. <laughs> and I think probably the most famous one is just famous because it's a picture that people like on the internet, but it is Elvis 
in the Oval Office with Richard Nixon, uh, sure. just having a very early 1970s time together. And it's drug addict Elvis, and it's directly yeah. related to him being a drug addict at the time, which I think is wonderful. I think <laughs> I, I think of yes. the entire entertainment industry of 1974 as like circling around overweight drug addict Elvis and overweight mustache drug addict James Brown. And they're like respective yeah. airplanes just flying from city to city, making friends with Nixon. Right. <laughs> like buying radio stations, like <laughs> doing crazy things. And there's somebody like squirreling drugs away for 1975 so we could do SNL, you know, yeah. and then launch exactly. all of comedy. Exactly. <laughs> Have you ever seen, there's this amazing movie called Soul Power. I think it's Soul Power. That no. is shot at the fight, and we might end up talking about Muhammad Ali at some point, but it's yes. shot at the fight that's in When We Were Kings, the Rumble in the Jungle. Oh, it's, um, it's an Ali Frazier fight? Yeah, kind of exactly. So yeah. they also had this cultural festival around that. And the same footage that they drew from to make When We Were Kings, they drew from to make a music documentary. And the really amazing thing about the music documentary is James Brown is right at the peak where you want to see performance footage of someone, which is right after their last important hit. So they can do all their hits, but they can still do their hits competently. So he's husky and he's got big hair, but he has a giant mustache and a full Elvis jumpsuit with an enormous belt buckle. And when I say enormous, I'm talking about like a foot top to bottom. Oh, like a wrestling belt. Like a wrestling belt situation that says GFOS for Godfather of Soul. Oh, amazing. And it rules so hard. But anyway, <laughs> he and Elvis were in the same place at this point, which is surrounded by enablers and trying to curry Nixon's favor <laughs> directly. Yeah, at some point you're at that stage where you have a cape and a tall collar and like someone who you're like, I never take drugs. I only take prescriptions. And then yeah. you're being prescribed everything in the entire world. And, uh, your, and your solution to any problem you have is... Well, I'll ask the president for help. Yeah, yeah, because the, the story we've got here is the, the story of that picture. I think before I knew this, I just thought it was like a funny thing that happened. Like, oh, these two nuts met. Fun. But it was December 21st of 1970. Elvis just decided that he needed to make sure he could have the various prescriptions he needed around him at all times. And so he immediately booked a red eye to Washington, D.C., and on American Airlines stationery, scribbled out a very strange letter to Richard Nixon about how Elvis could be a fighter in the, the battle against drugs and how, how people all over the, the spectrum of culture, including the commies, were big fans of Elvis. And so they, he could work it out for him. And then Elvis hand delivers the note to the White House. And a few hours later, they bring him up to meet Nixon. And Elvis gifts Nixon a Colt 45 that he just brought into the Oval Office to give him. And then uh, Nixon gives him a badge and there's a picture. What I love about this, besides the idea that the solution to all problems is to fly to the president. Yes. <laughs> is just the idea that Nixon had so few friends, much less cool friends. Oh, yeah. It's sort of like the current president with Ted Nugent. Oh, yeah. It's like... Let's presume Ted Nugent was not an asshole, which he is, mm -hmm. by all by all appearances. Yeah, it seems like it. But let's presume he was just Eddie Money or whatever the equivalent is to Ted Nugent, who's not an asshole. R.I.P. Eddie Money. I think he passed away. But yeah. whatever that guy is, 
Yeah. He'd have a tough time getting a meeting with Obama. You know what I mean? Obama's like, I got I got Beyonce and Jay-Z coming in in 20 minutes. Like right. the Bruce Springsteen's coming over tonight. It's like, <laughs> I'll find you a place on the calendar. But, you know, whereas right. Trump, he does not have a big wide palette of entertainers to, who are willing to show up and shake his hand on camera. Yeah, so no. he's just like, yeah, bring in Nugent. <laughs> Bring in the nuge again. <laughs> and like, I feel like that's where Nixon was at. Nixon was just like, well, they'll be friends with me, won't they? Will they Will they appear on camera? Is it someone who's willing to stand next to me? You know? Yeah, like... Near perfect that's impression. Stood up. Yeah, almost perfect. <laughs> I won't say perfect because I don't want to be immodest, but almost perfect impression. Yeah. Mine's like, it's like a Swedish chef and a dog put together. Like, yeah. <laughs> like it's not... <laughs> Just the idea that Nixon was down for whatever as long as he got to meet a cool kid. And it wasn't like what's great about it is, to me anyway, Nixon, he doesn't give a care about Elvis. He hates Elvis. Nixon right. doesn't give a care about James Brown. He hates James Brown. He's just excited that a person likes him that other people like. Maybe the closest thing in real life is the time when suddenly Kanye West was wearing a Trump hat and telling yeah. him how great he was. And yes. then Trump was like, very cool, Kanye. Like, all right, uh, someone <laughs> wants to talk to me. Like, yeah, Trump was basically like, word up, Kanye West. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's such a weird meeting in this particular case because Elvis had just started his Vegas residency. Also, he was on many, many prescription drugs. Eventually, when he would pass away, he'd be found to be on Dilaudid, Percodan, Demerol, Codeine, and also Qualudes, which are not a prescription drug. He just had a sudden idea and fly to the Capitol to uh, protect his drug situation as best he could. Yeah. It's the craziest meeting in the world. I mean, what would you do to protect your drug situation? I mean, the other alternative is to build one of those, like a fortified safe house of some kind. Oh, yeah. Which he also did. So I guess he sure. was just covering all fronts. <laughs> and then people take tours of your safe house. Yeah. It's a whole event, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I wonder how far the catch of this is. So he did it to get an honorary DEA agent status. Yes. A badge. He gives Nixon a gun. Mm -hmm. Nixon gives him this badge. What value do you think, practically speaking, that badge had relative to, for example, just spitballing here, being Elvis? <laughs> <laughs> like, what? Who is the police officer who's like, oh, sorry, King, I ain't letting you off. Yeah. What's that? You're an honorary DEA agent? Well, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> Oh, oh, all right, Captain. Yeah. Oh, I... <laughs> Hell, my my respect for the chain of command trumps <laughs> my my respect for the history of rock and roll, America's music. <laughs> yeah. There's another White House-related story here, because, uh, and this is coming from Five Surprising Relationships Between Historical Figures by Ryan Menezes. Uh, this is an older story. It's the story of Amelia Earhart and Eleanor Roosevelt going flying together which I know sounds like just some uh, slash fiction I've created, but it's yeah. actually a thing that happened and was very exciting. It's beautiful. My favorite part about it, besides that they obviously should have been making out on the airplane. 100% yeah, I mean, should have been making yeah. out on the We can't say with historical certainty that they were, but yeah. in my conception, 100% they were. Yeah. But also that Eleanor bailed on the White House stuff for it. I feel like anything random that starts at or happens at the White House, 
that doesn't have to do with the direct responsibilities of presidenting is thrilling. You know, like, yeah, you know, the Jay-Z lyric, bring guns to the Grammys, pop bottles on the White House lawn. That is like the greatest thrill in the world is to think of Nixon bowling at the White House or like Willie Nelson blazing a J at the White House (laughs) or like all these different things that you hear rumors about being at the White House or like Obama going to play basketball with famous basketball players because he can. I love the idea of people who are the most important people in America blowing off work (laughs) (laughs) and using using their powers for not evil but not strictly work-related purposes. (laughs) It seems like every president gets one upgrade to the White House for funsies. Yeah. Like Truman put in a bowling alley, and then I think Eisenhower was the putting green. Yeah. Obama put in an organic garden, which is very on brand. Yeah, it's very sweet. Yeah. (laughs) But like, man, I would do a batting cage. That would be the best. Oh, yeah. Batting cage. (laughs) That would be so good. This story of having funsies by flying uh, it was a 1933, April 20th specifically. It was a White House party. It was a, apparently a pretty boring dinner party. And Amelia Earhart and Eleanor Roosevelt were there. They snuck out and went to Hoover Airfield in Arlington, Virginia, the closest airport at the time to the White House, and then borrowed an Eastern Air transport plane and flew to Baltimore and back in their nice outfits. Just bailed on the whole thing. How great would it be if you could just go to an airport yeah. and be like, hi, <laughs> My name's Eleanor. This is my friend Amelia. Can we borrow your airplane? (laughs) You'd better bring it back. And that's the only requirement. Yeah. (laughs) We're only going to Baltimore and back. We'll bring you some soft shell crabs. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, just what a world. A lot of the hangs we've got here went pretty weird, but it seems like that one was just very good for both of them. They had a great time. What could be better? Yeah. I think when you are a real celebrity... You end up in these situations a lot. There will come a day, if you become a celebrity, that you will spend a day, like, antiquing with Jeff Goldblum. Yeah. (laughs) Like, it just comes with the territory. They're like, oh, and my antiquing with Jeff Goldblum day is on Thursday. Right. It's just in in your Google calendar, like, dentist, antiquing with Jeff Goldblum. Uh, Let's look at at another one here because this is from Mind-Blowing Celebrity Connections That Seem Impossible uh, by Rachel P. Wyatt Earp, the, like, famous Western lawman. From the shootout of the OK Corral. Yeah, like from history and actual events and stuff. (laughs) It turns out that toward the end of his life, he dies in 1929, but toward the end of his life, he decided to try to make it in Hollywood. Sure. Who Uh, would? I mean, at the time, there was, like, (laughs) there was, like, dogs and octopuses and stuff becoming stars in film. Yeah. (laughs) Rex the Horse was the biggest star in the world. Talking monkeys, whatever. (laughs) They were just putting stuff. There was, this is not long after the period when the biggest film star in the world was train arriving at station. (laughs) (laughs) And terrifying audience. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And so Wyatt Earp was like, I can beat them. I'll do it. And it turned out he didn't really beat them. He only had one brief extra role, but he got into like doing a lot of gunfighting, choreography, and and advising filmmakers on what the West was like because he was in a bunch of real shootouts there and stuff. And at one point in 1924, he was on a set and he befriends a 17-year-old extra and prop boy named Marion Morrison. A.K.A. Mr. John Wayne. Yeah. And they apparently hit it off, did great. And according to John Wayne's son, uh, a lot of John Wayne's acting as a cowboy when he actually started being a star was just patterned off of what he saw Wyatt Earp do. 
like yeah. a real guy when they hung out on like weird Hollywood sets together. Yeah. It's the craziest G- thing. <laughs> Given how well developed John Wayne's persona was, you got to figure that just comes from something directly. And given that he was on film sets as a teenager, it can't have come from his own. You know, it's not like one of those, like a police officer turned actor, oh, like yeah. Dennis Farina or something. Dennis Farina, isn't that right? He was a police officer. I think he was I a be- police officer yeah, before so. he became. So it's yeah. like, it's not like he knows it because he lived that. Yeah. So you figured there's just one guy who's like, howdy, partner, whatever it is that John Wayne says. Yeah. And he's like, oh, yeah, I could I could do that. <laughs> yeah, that and horse riding? Sure. And well, being unspeakably handsome? Of course. <laughs> it's in the bag. I'm already tall, so yeah. <laughs> it seems like I go from there. Exactly. Or it seems like I go from there. Something like that. Yeah, that was pretty good. Ah, thanks. And then from there, John Wayne, because I do know because I have family from Iowa that he's from near Des Moines and then just like moved to the L.A. area when he was around like 10 years old. Uh, Mm. So he was never some sort of like Arizona ranch hand or something. Right. He was just a Midwestern kid who wanted to be in movies. Yeah. And then he met an actual cowboy. And that was the way to do it at the time that you had to get a special hat. I feel like you had to own two hats because they color coded the right. the morality. You yeah, know? until you got typecast. Yeah, <laughs> I just went to this uh, men's fashion show in San Francisco, but it's like a trade show called Inspiration, and it's run by a Japanese guy who lives in L.A. who's known as the King of Americana Vintage. Oh, in Japan, Americana vintage clothing and aesthetics are very culturally significant, and by far. The best part of going to this event, which I try to go to every year, is just Japanese dudes dressed in like full Roy Rogers outfits. Oh, that's like, great. Like those cowboy hats that are like literally like 18 inches tall, two feet tall. Yeah. With like foot wide brims. Like very singing cowboy kind of hats. Yeah, just completely bananas hats. Yeah. And these guys look absolutely tremendous in these outfits. (laughs) They look so great. And it reminds you of what John Wayne figured out all those years ago, which is like, the equipment is great. This is a five-star setup. It doesn't take much once you put that stuff on for it to fly. Oh, yeah. It's easy to accept. Once you put on that ridiculous hat, you're like, ah, look at this guy in his hat. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just live it. Yeah. You're there. Just do it. (laughs) There's another thing here, which is that Nikita Khrushchev, the uh, the leader of the Soviet Union. Sure. It makes sense with Hollywood because he uh, was invited in 1959 to meet with Eisenhower at Camp David about Berlin and do a bunch of uh, Cold War business. Yeah. And then Khrushchev said, I will come if I can visit the whole U.S. I just want to see all of it. And immediately made plans to go to Hollywood. He was like, I'm definitely going to do that. So we have a weird hang here where the 20th Century Fox studio basically made Marilyn Monroe go and meet Nikita Khrushchev. For like studio promotion and and Cold War purposes of some kind, just to really sort of like to convince him that America was a land of horny wonders. Yes, like a big. I feel like a big part of our communications to Nikita because this is this must be an earlier trip to the legendary one where he gets served baked Alaska and he says, "Truly, America is a land of wonders." (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if that's an apocryphal story or not, but like, like cooked ice cream. We were just throwing stuff at the wall with that guy, weren't we? Yeah. Like spam? Yeah. Baseball? I don't know. Yeah. The general theme is land of horny wonders. Yeah. Totally. Maybe I'm revealing that baked Alaska makes me horny, but it does. <laughs> I mean, I'm, a, can, I'm what they call yourself? a right thinking American. 
20th Century Fox toured Khrushchev through the set of their movie Can Can, which was going to be a big movie musical that was mostly like ladies' legs in a, yeah. a French setting. And it was basically promo for their movie was we'll have the leader of communist Russia come by. And then after that, they held a big lunch and they basically pressured Marilyn Monroe. And the pressure is not a great thing, but they were like, you have to go meet him. And then when she met him, she had been taught like by rote a sentence to say to him in Russian because Natalie Wood was fluent in Russian. And so Natalie Wood helps Marilyn Monroe learn a line in Russian, which is a whole nother weird celebrity hang. Great. And then she goes to Khrushchev and says, we, the workers of 20th Century Fox, rejoice that you have come to visit our studio and country. Yeah, well, that's, in Russian. A, that's a perfectly reasonable sentence to say, I think. Yeah, it's Reasonably diplomatic. Yeah, and e- emphasizes workers because he's a communist. Right. So it's, it's pretty fun. Yeah. yeah. She, was she married to Arthur Miller at the time? Is that is that the time frame we're talking about? Yeah. So also, apparently, Khrushchev was a real creepo and like kind of staring at her in, in a bad way. So then, according to uh, Marilyn Monroe's maid, who's told this story, Lena Pepitone, Marilyn like immediately made a point of saying, "Like, I'm sorry, my husband Arthur Miller couldn't be here," which yeah. was like, you know, like, come on, uh, Soviet premier, you don't need to be weird. He was looking at her like a loaf of brown bread. He didn't have to wait in line for him. All right. <laughs> 30% sand in the bread <laughs> at the time. Let's look at a, a couple of people we brought up before. Uh, there was a hangout between Prince and Muhammad Ali, and it just happened. It was in 1997, and they both happened to be in Washington, D.C. And this is another one where they both had a great time, uh, yeah. sort of like Earhart and Roosevelt. It was a little bit awkward because when they came and met in this hotel that one of them was staying at, uh, Ali sees Prince and says, Prince! which at the time was a faux pas because he had changed his name to the symbol a few years before. Yeah. And so he was the artist formerly known as. And so, so all the handlers were like, oh, this is a disaster. Yeah, what do you want us to call you, Cassius? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then from there, they just hit it off completely, mainly because they both like magic tricks. I may alienate a not insignificant portion of your audience by saying that I Ooh, personally- here we go. I personally hate magic. I I <laughs> okay. don't like I don't like people tricking me and I don't like me feeling obliged to congratulate them on tricking me. <laughs> However, that said, I I just like shove away a big trunk I brought like, <laughs> yeah, me too. Oh yeah. It's the worst. You just start putting a scarf back <laughs> into your pocket. <laughs> <laughs> You gather up the rabbit and put it on top of your head and cover it. (laughs) I do love, though, that so many people who have the temperament to become a famous person in entertainment were driven by those same turmoil forces inside themselves, the same combination of neuroatypicality, desire for approval, desire to control others in social interactions. (laughs) You know, all these things that drive anyone to become a performer, like those are the exact ones that drive people to become a magician. And so like many people do all the magic work between the ages of seven and 17. And then they realize like, oh, this would work better if I just did this, but with a guitar. (laughs) (laughs) If I just took this same compulsion... (laughs) <laughs> and these same emotional brokennesses and and put them into boxing or playing guitar, all these things, and probably what I do for a living, 
all just come from a desperate need to control others in social situations <laughs> through through a process of being very lonely. <laughs> like no. like I, a lot yeah. of hard, lonely work to manage the natural alienation of teenagerdom. I, I hadn't thought about these all these celebrity hangs is like, not only is it weird because each person is like, that other person's very famous, but also both people might be the types who did a lot of practicing and art and, and performing a thing in order to be better at being social. Right. <laughs> so, so it's like two people who are really not built for that interaction, but then everyone around them's like, what are Prince and Ali going to do? I know. And they're and just like, like, we're both weird. A lot of these people, you know, Prince, by all accounts, is a very introverted guy. Yeah. And... That is, it's like, I don't think it's unusual because that is the combo. If you're actually an introvert, which means you're comfortable spending the time being by yourself, ripping sweet solos until you're good enough to, you know, walk on stage at, at First Avenue or whatever. Yeah. And you also want to have, like a lot of introverts, want to have a social interaction that is on your terms. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. The guy who made the music for my NPR show, Bullseye, this guy named Dan Wally. He's like a TV producer, but I got to know him on the internet many years ago on a rap message board because he would post remixes there. And he was a great, great hip-hop producer. Cool. He DJs on the side when he's not producing television shows. And his friend just called him up one day from a hotel that he worked at and said, hey, we have a client who rented out the bar tonight. Could you just come and DJ, but it does have to be tonight. And it starts at 10 and it goes till four. And my friend was like, does it pay? And he's like, yeah, pretty good. And he's like, yeah, sure. I'll be out there. You know, loaded up his crates, went out there that night and DJed to a totally empty bar until two o'clock in the morning. Like four hours. They're like, just keep playing. He rented out the whole bar. He wanted there to be a DJ there. So just keep playing, and if the client shows, he shows. If he doesn't, he doesn't. Like 2.30 in the morning or something, Prince walks in. Oh, my God. And it's just like Prince and a lady and his assistant and like a bodyguard. Sounds right. And they just sit down. They're hanging out in the bar in a booth, you know, not making eye contact with Dan. And Dan (laughs) is like losing his mind. He's like, I have to be chill here, but... I am literally DJing a party, which is only Prince. (laughs) He's like, what is Prince like? He's like, the Ohio players. I'll put on the Ohio players, you know? And and he's playing records that he thinks Prince would like. (laughs) And after a couple hours, Prince's assistant came up to the DJ booth and Dan was like, this is the greatest gig I've ever had in my entire life. I'm going to get fired. And the assistant just says, "Uh, Prince wants you to know that he's enjoying there's no one else there. He could have just like turned his head and said, I'm enjoying the music. A thumbs up or something? Yeah. I don't exactly. know if that's beneath him, but like a little quick salute. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. And he ended up he ended up getting a bunch of gigs DJing for Prince whenever he was in knocking around LA, but he never actually spoke to him. That is exactly what I think interactions with Prince are like. Like un- unless he feels some amazing need to speak to you directly, it'll just be sort of brought to you by staff and then and it's not to be insulting, it's just that Prince is in another zone and that's that's all that's going on. Yeah. And it comes from the same like the same feelings of being a magician and like wanting to meet Muhammad Ali and the two of you just do magic tricks together. There's another hang here, but this is sort of an accidental one. 
John Belushi, I grew up around Chicago, and so everyone was nuts about John Belushi. He's, he, sure. he like went to high school in Wheaton, the town over from the suburb I was in. And he and financial expert Suze Orman met each other through Suze Orman paying uh, bail for him to get out of jail while <laughs> Suze Orman was in college. He was romantically involved with and eventually married Suze Orman's college roommate. Right, yeah. Can you imagine, like... <laughs> Like, I don't know if you've ever had a roommate whose romantic partner would come over a lot. I have, yeah. That is a very unique... Many of us who've lived in urban environments have had that experience, especially like when you're like 22. I was in a four-person apartment once that was really more of a seven-person apartment Yeah, because of all the significant others. And and then we were just like, okay, I guess they get whatever amount of territory uh, happens. Okay. But can you imagine if the person that was co- kept coming over to your house and spending the night without you giving permission was Belushi? Right. <laughs> like, yeah. he's like, oh, this is the cocaine cabinet now. Right. Because <laughs> also, like, Animal House hadn't come out yet. But to be in college and John Belushi keeps coming over I know, is a very strange. It's like living in a guitar shop and Steve Vai or somebody keeps coming over. And, and it's well, like, oh, well, OK. There's this also is his environment. Like, I I know that this is very much not true for all comedy people. I mean, you and I both know a lot of comedy people. I think yeah. it's not the general case that comedy people live their performance persona. Right. But in some cases it is true. And I think John Belushi was probably like that, right? Like, I don't think seems ju- like there was like a quiet, contemplative John Belushi hidden behind <laughs> the cocaine-fueled madman. Like, <laughs> like, not that he is a dummy or anything. I'm sure he, he was a very bright man by all accounts, but like, but a madman the he, whole time. Yeah, I don't think he was doing like the SNL samurai sketch and yeah. just thinking like, I wish I could be listening to my book on tape yeah. and having some tea. Because also the specific Belushi crime here, because he was in jail for just so many unpaid parking tickets, yeah. which is exactly a like Belushi crime, like just sweet chaos. I uh, love in this then... <laughs> piece, there is a mugshot of Belushi. You know, it's yeah. a, like a regular, like a paired mugshot, two shots next to each other. And in one of them, he's raising one of his eyebrows, and in the other one, he's raising <laughs> his other eyebrow. Yeah. <laughs> he's just doing his thing, man. He just had it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he, uh, his girlfriend at the time named Judith Pisano, soon to be his uh, wife later on, but uh, she was a roommate at University of Illinois with Suze Orman, who would go on to be like a CNBC financial expert and all this stuff. Judith didn't want her parents knowing that she was living with a man, let alone that it was John Belushi. And so they convinced Suze Orman's dad to provide $25 in 1970s money as bail uh, to get Belushi out. What's nice about it is it also functions as an effective origin story for Suze Orman. Yes. Like you feel like her entire persona of yelling at you for making poor financial decisions (laughs) could have just been born from this one time that she had to ask her dad for $25 or $250 to bail out John Belushi. Yeah, that's the radioactive spider. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> her hair had been brown and shoulder length. <laughs> and just the minute she got the call, it just regressed into her head and became platinum blonde. <laughs> right. Time for action. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's Ormond time. <laughs> We've got a couple more here. I want to stick with the the modern celebrities, too. This is three people all at once. And this is a hangout that happened in 1984 where it was Steve Jobs, 
teaches Andy Warhol how to use Mac Paint on the original Macintosh computer. And you would think this would happen because Steve Jobs was Steve Jobs, which he kind of wasn't yet. Right, and you would right. think it would happen because Steve Jobs called Andy Warhol and said, look, you're interested in art in the age of mechanical reproduction. <laughs> right. <laughs> Why don't you come over and try our new software? However, how did it happen? <laughs> yeah, if anything, Warhol should have been yelling at him here because yeah. it's a very obvious connection, but it was at Sean Lennon's ninth birthday party. <laughs> uh, the son of John Lennon, a uh, little boy. <laughs> and we're pulling from a PBS story that, that seems to at least imply, I couldn't tell for sure, but it implies it's at like the Dakota, like the New York building where Lennon lived before he was killed. But Steve Jobs goes to Sean Lennon's birthday party and brings an original Macintosh as a gift for Sean Lennon. And then they spend some time together and Jobs is like, hey, there's like a, a drawing program. Why don't I show you how to use it? And Sean Lennon was like, I'm a child, so I'm brilliant at technology and I'm doing it. It's going great. Boop, 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 boop. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I've moved on <laughs> to Crystal Quest. <laughs> and then from there, according to David Sheff, who was interviewing Jobs for Playboy and was at the party, Jobs and Sean Lennon are doing this. And then Andy Warhol walks in the room and is like, what is that? And then comes over and demands to be taught how to use it. And Steve Jobs tries to teach him. Andy Warhol sort of struggles with the mouse. And then once he figures out the mouse, apparently Warhol yelled to the room, I drew a circle. <laughs> and all three of these people are doing this thing. It's yeah. the craziest. Yeah, it's great. That was an actual interaction, like in real life. Yeah. <laughs> At the beginning of the show, we talked about Elvis. And there's one more Elvis story. Why don't we, why don't we go full circle? Why don't we close it together? God damn. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> oh, God, he's here. Our impressions are incredible. Yeah. <laughs> We're the new Rich Little. <laughs> well, and it was Elvis hanging out with the Beatles. It's me, the Beatles. There we go. And Bam. <laughs> What's that, the Beatles? It's me, all of them. What are you? What are you going to replace me? <laughs> God damn. <laughs> What's going to happen? My reputation's going to fade and yours is only going to grow brighter? <laughs> is it generational or what? <laughs> Will we both have the records for number one songs until Garth Brooks? <laughs> Garth Brooks, would you say, be honest with me, Okay. <laughs> that Garth Brooks is the most okay musician of all time? <laughs> Correct. <laughs> yeah, I've never heard a bad or good Garth Brooks song. <laughs> yeah. It's a completely fair, it's a remarkable needle he threaded. Yeah. <laughs> it's like falling asleep or going into purgatory or something. Yeah. It's just okay. And forget him. We've got Elvis and the Beatles. According to history, they only met once and one night, and that was the only time they ever hung out. And the BBC says that on August 27th of 1965, uh, so this is before Vegas and, and some of the drugs for Elvis, August 27th, 1965, the Beatles had a night off their U.S. tour. So they went to Elvis's mansion in Beverly Hills, and the Beatles demanded that no press come because they wanted to have like a nice time just hanging out and having a good time. And it was weird anyway. No one enjoyed the experience, and it was just kind of awkward the entire time. He does not seem like he was a chill or well-adjusted guy in general. Right. And the way that he must have lived in the world from the mid-1950s until his death is something that basically no one else could ever imagine. And like even oh, yeah. <laughs> even we who were born after he died, like I don't think we could ever understand what Elvis meant to the generation that came before us. Yeah. And like what he was, just like Elvis had this stature that we could never understand. 
Yeah. And that the Beatles really were the second and third versions of that. Like they were the thing yeah. that replaced Elvis's generation in the like quick turning world of 1950s into 1960s popular culture. You know, as the world was being transformed, they were like, well, you know, we'll throw in a little music hall and a little skiffle, but basically we're recreating that, but we're doing it in a way that works for a significantly different pop cultural landscape that's already had the Jerry Lee Lewis and Chuck Berry and Elvis Presley translating them. And then they, of course, had the a second transformation in the mid to late 1960s. Yeah. But, like, they are also, like, not a person. So, like, they could never understand what Elvis was themselves, I'm sure, like, what it was like to be Elvis. Because even in the times when they couldn't leave their houses and all of that shit, at least they had friends. And three other guys who understood. Right. Like, they had those other people that they were doing it with. Whether they were the kind of friends that maybe hated each other as well, that's possible. But, like... At least they had another guy with that same crazy haircut. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> Elvis was just a guy. George Harrison in particular was apparently really good friends with Bob Dylan and Tom Petty and, and Orbison and, and all these other big musicians in a way that was probably a good community. And you never hear about like, yeah, Elvis is good friend, other star. Like, yeah. It never comes up at all. <laughs> yeah, you're like, El- like, did Elvis hang out with Carl Perkins? Or like, you know what I mean? Right. It's so not comparable. Like Johnny Cash, like so not comparable. Tom Jones, so (laughs) there's, he had no peer. Yeah. There was no such thing as a peer for Elvis. Yeah, I I think he just had Colonel Tom Parker like carrying him from location to location. Well, giving him him drugs like, yeah, like baby (laughs) giving drugs to Lil Wayne. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like just... (laughs) controlling him through yeah I, I can't you can't even begin to imagine but what would you say if you were if you're john lennon what do you say to elvis john lennon as i especially learned about him as an adult there's some dark stuff but also then he was like very into comedy and very like in people's face a mm-hmm. lot because in the in the actual story here he goes really hardcore my personality i would have just been like oh shit it's elvis my god uh hi you know we know what ringo Starr said Peace and love, peace and love. <laughs> and no more fan mail uh, yeah. the, in that clip that we'll footnote. That's great. Uh, <laughs> love it, love it, love it, love it. Because they did a thing where all the Beatles get dropped off and they were being followed by their press officer who was named Tony Barrow. And he told the BBC, quote, as the two teams faced one another, there was a weird silence and it was John who spoke first, rather awkwardly blurting out a stream of questions at Elvis saying, quote, why do you do all these soft-centered ballads for the cinema these days? What happened to good old rock and roll? And quote, Elvis was fairly quiet. And God, I think what a dick move. Like you meet Elvis and you're like, why are you bad now? Is the craziest thing to do in the world. Wow. I don't have it in me. Yeah. And you know that like for those guys, they're from another continent. Yeah. So to them, this isn't just a mythical figure because of his fame. It's because he comes from a, an entirely different world. Yeah, different culture and, and different background and everything. To just meet him and just be like, motherfuck you and John Wayne? <laughs> <laughs> like, holy cow. Well, and also, this story is weird to me because I went and Googled and checked, and 
uh, the Beatles movie Help had like just come out, which is their second big movie after Hard Day's Night. And like those were phenomena. Like Elvis also had a bunch of huge movies, but they were making movies too. So why be why be weird? I don't know. Yeah, Maybe John a, thought. You don't need to be a heel. Yeah, just be be cool about stuff. Yeah. That happened. And then according to the article, quote, they quickly exhausted their initial bout of small talk. Uh, and there was this embarrassing silence between the mega famous five. They stood there facing each other with very little of import being said. End quote. You would think all five of them would be like, now that we're here, we make the best record in the world. But it sounds like it was more of a, we have nothing to talk about. Maybe we do a jam session or something. Yeah. Plus, uh, weirdly, the the Beatles seem to be have been focused on making the best record of all time with Phil Spector. Yeah. That was their goal, was to just get Phil Spector roped into their thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because they do a, a short jam session, which is basically Elvis's guys find all the guitars in the house and bring them down. There were no drums around, so Ringo just had to, like, tap on stuff. But they try this jam session, and then they find they still have nothing to talk about. And then it seems like Colonel Tom Parker, who was kind of Elvis's handler and, and everything, gave the Beatles a stack of gift Elvis records as a way of saying, okay, the, the encounter is over. Please get out. And so then he gave that to them. Then according to Tony Barrow, who's in this BBC article, quote, I remember as we went out to our limousines, John put on his Adolf Hitler accent and shouted, Long live the king. Also, John said as we got into our limousines, Elvis was stoned. George Harrison responded very, very quietly, aren't we all? Yeah. Fucking George Harrison seemed like he was a chill dude. Yeah, he really does. I read recently Eric Idle's autobiography because he came on my show. George Harrison is one of his best buds. And, you know, George Harrison financed a Python movies and stuff. And, like, just comes off as, like, the guy that everyone wanted to be friends with because he was such a decent guy. That's really cool. Whereas in this story, John Lennon really seems like an asshole. Yeah. I think he was good at music. I'm going to go sure. out on a limb and say that. Okay. Like, well, we'll I, fact look, check that. I'm not, afra- I'm not afraid to say the things that people are thinking. <laughs> I think John Lennon was pretty good at music. <laughs> but he does seem like a little bit of a heel sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah, pretty fair. Yeah. <laughs> are there any of these hangouts you would have wanted to be at? Because some of the good ones, I'm like, that'd be really fun. And some of the awkward ones, I'm like, that would be really fun. I'd really like to see them just sweat. That'd be great. Well, some of the Beatles seem fun. Which is not true of most celebrities. I, I think the other three seem fun, other than John. Yeah. Like, Paul might be a little intense some of the time. Otherwise, pretty good. Like, as much as we might laugh about Ringo being a Dorcas, which yeah. he is, <laughs> in some ways that makes him the best one. Yes. Because you're like, it's great. He He's a Beatle and a Dorcas. Right. You know what I mean? He decided to just be a Dorcas professionally and be on Shiny Time Station. Yeah. It's great. Really good. What a joy. What a great life. (laughs) The person that I would want to see, like, of all these people that we've talked about, Prince is the one I have the most connection to their art personally. But I don't don't think I want to know about Prince as a person that much. Like, he seems like he was a very introverted man who was kind of funny and liked the internet in the early days of the internet and would like post on his own message boards and stuff under pseudonyms and be in like AOL chats. I didn't know he did that. Yeah. That's so cool. That is really cool. It's very fun. Like I know people that knew him on the internet. That's great. Yeah. I saw him in concert once and it was amazing and I'm, I'm glad that I get to have his records forever. 
but I don't need to know him as a person. Elvis Presley, there is a part of me that's like, who was that human being? Yeah. Like, this is crazy that he was a human being. And he doesn't seem like he would be a jerk. Right. Maybe befuddled in some way. <laughs> like, there's a part of me that does kind of want to see Elvis being a, a person. And, like, I feel the same way about Muhammad Ali as I feel about Prince. Like, I don't necessarily want it revealed to me who he is as a person, in part because his public persona, I think, is probably really different than who he was as a human being. Yeah. And he probably was just an introverted guy who, who was good at putting on the show that Don King was asking him to put on as a, you know, boxing promoter, you know yeah, what I mean? Wow. And was deeply principled, but maybe uncomfortable in other situations than that, you know? Whereas Elvis, I'm like, maybe he would be a cool dude to kick it with. I don't know. Like making peanut butter and banana sandwiches or whatever. Maybe that would be good. <laughs> He's the closest to one that where I think it would be it would be good. What about Eleanor Roosevelt and Amelia that, Earhart? That'd be pretty chill. Yeah. Yeah. But then I'd feel I'd feel creepy because they're making out and everything. Third wheel, yeah. Total third so. wheel situation. <laughs> What's the point of being a famous maybe lesbian of history if you're not <laughs> making out with the other famous maybe lesbians of history? <laughs> if you're not having romance together. <laughs> And then they're like, there are other lesbians. I don't have to just. Yeah. yeah, they're like, come on. It wasn't just the two of us for yeah. a century. Like, but you're the ones I've heard of. <laughs> kiss, kiss, kiss. <laughs> Folks, that's the episode for this week. My thanks to Jesse Thorne for being so generous with his time and enjoyment of things and general attitude toward life. I also want to thank him and John Hodgman for allowing me to experience their Judge John Hodgman live tour. It's a next-level live show they do, so whenever there's new dates for that, please watch out for it, because it's great. In our food notes, you will find the many cracked sources and outside sources, because we always feature both, used to assemble this episode. I particularly recommend the BBC article about Elvis and the Beatles hanging out and having a pretty bad time. You would think people that famous in the same field would find a way to make it work, Nope, didn't do it. And of course, we are linking to the many podcasts of Maximum Fun and of Jesse Thorne because uh, that's that's just good shows. I'm sure you already know them if you like comedy podcasts, but if you don't, I highly recommend you check them out. And beyond all that, our theme music is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. This episode was engineered by Jordan Cowling and edited by Chris Souza. If you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media. A space that makes celebrity hangouts a lot more public, and to me, that removes a little of the magic. Takes a little bit of it out. Like, I, I don't want to see Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston shake hands in 2020. I, I want to imagine it, you know? I, I just want that to be in my mind. But we have a picture, and who cares? My own Twitter account focuses on the magic of Snoopy and just what I'm up to. That account is at Alex Schmitty. My Instagram is at Alex Schmitztagram. And I'm on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. That's got my show dates, my fun email newsletter of free internet stuff tips, and more. And I'm here to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then. Mm -hmm.